About a hundred years ago, this guy named Thomas Marshall had a joke he liked to tell. A family had two sons. When they grew up, one went off to sea, and the other became vice president of the United States. And neither was ever heard from again. What makes the joke funny is that when Marshall told it, he was the vice president, serving under Woodrow Wilson. One of Franklin Roosevelt's vice presidents called the office not worth a bucket of warm spit. Only he didn't say spit, and this is a family podcast. And when Daniel Webster was offered the vice presidency, he quipped that he didn't intend to be buried until he died. But today, the office of the vice presidency is a completely different animal. And there may be no more powerful vice president in the country's history than the office's current occupant, Mike Pence. Hey, I'm Reed Wilson, and this is The Hill's History Cast, a podcast on the history and culture of American politics. Today, we'll consider the office of the vice presidency, a last-minute addition to the Constitution that has become an integral part of the modern White House. Let's start back in Philadelphia, as the Founding Fathers were drafting the Constitution. They actually mentioned the vice president first, before they get to the powers of the president. But they didn't give the VP a lot of power. That's my colleague, Neve Ellis. He covers Congress for the Hill, and right now that means covering a vice president who acts as kind of a liaison between the White House and Capitol Hill. The vice president shows up in Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution. He's given the power to preside over the Senate, but doesn't get a vote unless it's tied. Beyond that, the Constitution says the vice president will be elected alongside the president to a four-year term, and it says the vice president succeeds the president if he dies or gets kicked out of office. Then the vice president isn't mentioned again until the 12th Amendment, which passed years after the Constitution was ratified. We'll get to that one in a minute. Joel Goldstein is a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law, and he delves into the history of the vice presidency in his most recent book, The White House Vice Presidency, The Path to Significance, Mondale to Biden. He says the authors of the Constitution didn't originally envision a number two. Well, the vice presidency really was a constitutional afterthought. Um, It was added in the late days of the uh, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And the most likely explanation as to why the vice presidency was included wasn't to preside over the Senate or to provide a presidential successor, but was to make the original presidential election system work. The founders were afraid that that electors were going to vote for their home state's favorite sons. So what they did is they created a second office and gave each elector two votes and provided that one of the votes had to go for somebody from a different state. The idea being that that if they had to vote for at least one person from a state other than themselves, that that person would probably be the consensus vice president. The vice presidency really was was viewed as an expedient to allow the election of a national president. That system of electing a president and a vice president is laid out in Article 2, Section 1, what we now call the Electoral College. It worked just fine the first time around when George Washington won the presidency and John Adams won the vice presidency. But when Washington said he'd retire in 1796, Adams and Thomas Jefferson ran against each other. Adams won, but suddenly his vice president was the guy he'd campaigned against. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were rivals. They'd run against each other for president. Jefferson was the runner-up, and so he got stuck being vice president. And it did complicate things because basically what the vice president did was he spent his time presiding over the Senate, and he was the leader of the opposition party. Things got even more complicated four years later when Jefferson and his vice presidential nominee, Aaron Burr, received the same number of electoral votes. 
A tied presidential election gets thrown to the House of Representatives, and it took the House a week and 35 ballots to finally pick Jefferson. Afterwards, the Jeffersonians were afraid that if they didn't change the system, the opposition party, the Federalists, would be in a position to make a deal with whoever was Jefferson's running mate to get concessions and to promote that person as president. So the Jeffersonians forced through the 12th Amendment, changing the electoral system to what we have today, where the electors vote separately for president and vice president. Even with the 12th Amendment, the vice president existed in a sort of political limbo. The parties chose their presidential candidates through conventions back then, which meant the presidential candidate didn't have a lot of time to organize around the vice presidential running mate he might have wanted. Really, it wasn't until about 1940 that the presidential candidate started to play a major or the major role in selecting the vice presidential candidate. Uh, Up until that time, the party leaders chose the vice presidential candidate. And that had two consequences. One, ticket balancing. Oftentimes the vice president was chosen to bring balance, either ideological or geographical or both to the ticket. And secondly, there was no sort of sense of loyalty running both ways between the presidential candidate and vice presidential candidate. The vice presidential candidate didn't owe his slot to the presidential candidate. The presidential candidate didn't feel responsible for the vice presidential selection. So a bunch of vice presidents in the 19th century were not terribly well known. Elbridge Gerry, vice president during James Madison's second term, had actually opposed the creation of the office during the Constitutional Convention. Millard Fillmore had been New York State Comptroller before becoming John Tyler's vice president. VP Chester Arthur, who later became president when James Garfield was assassinated, had been chairman of the New York Republican Party. He'd been fired from his last government job as a customs collector in New York by the last Republican president. William Rufus Devane King was Franklin Pierce's vice president, but he was so sick when they won that he had to take the oath of office in Havana, Cuba, where he'd gone to recuperate from tuberculosis. He died 45 days after taking office, and he hadn't even made it back to Washington. And when someone first suggested that William Wheeler would be a perfect vice president for Rutherford Hayes, Hayes agreed, but then said, Forgive me for asking, but who is Wheeler? It wasn't until 1940 that a presidential candidate made a move to pick his own vice president. That year, Franklin Roosevelt said he would refuse to run for a third term unless Democrats nominated his agriculture secretary, Henry Wallace, as his vice president. Wallace was pretty unpopular with the 1940 Democratic Convention, but the convention very much wanted FDR for a third term, and so they accepted Wallace. The opposition to Wallace was so significant that although he was there, he wasn't allowed to give or he didn't give an acceptance speech. Even then, the vice president wasn't an integral part of the president's administration. Harry Truman was up on Capitol Hill when he learned that FDR had died in 1945. It wasn't until a few days later that one of his advisors pulled him aside and told him about this thing called the Manhattan Project, which was building the atomic bombs that helped end the war in the Pacific. The two vice presidents who came after Truman left the White House helped give the office a little more power. Dwight Eisenhower entrusted his vice president, Richard Nixon, with the delicate task of foreign diplomacy at the beginning of the Cold War. Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy's vice president, was the first to have an office on the White House campus itself. Even then, Johnson's staff was stuck in the executive office building, across the street from the West Wing. It wasn't until 1976 that the beginnings of the modern vice presidency started to take shape. The catalyst, Goldstein said, was that the Democratic Party began nominating its presidential candidates through primaries, so it became obvious a lot earlier who the nominee would be. 
In other words, Jimmy Carter actually had time to think about his vice presidential pick. With the shift to presidential primaries to choose the presidential candidate, one of the unforeseen consequences was that presidential nominations beginning in really uh, in the 1970s began to be resolved earlier, not always, but almost always than they had been previously. And so Jimmy Carter clinched the nomination about five weeks before the convention. And he had a, a, a period of time to engage in a vice presidential search, and that became the big political story. And Carter, for the first time, really did a very serious vetting process where he had first a long list, then a short list. He sent his closest confidant, Charles Kerbo, to interview people. And Carter interviewed vice presidential candidates himself. And so the first step really was that Carter determined that he, he really liked Mondale. He thought Mondale was somebody he could work with. He thought that um, there were, although there were differences, Mondale brought important balances. There were also similarities. Um, so it started with this relationship between Carter and Mondale and the fact that Carter wanted to do something about the vice presidency. He thought it was immoral to leave the vice president uninformed, and he thought it was wasteful not to utilize a government asset. On December 9th, 1976, Mondale delivered a seven-page memo to Carter laying out what he thought the role of the vice president should be. And it was a totally different definition of the office than anyone had ever tried before. Here's how Mondale summarized his main point. It is my hope in this memorandum that I can outline a set of relationships, functions, and assignments that will be workable and productive for the administration. I am committed to do everything possible to make this administration a success. I fully realize that my personal and political success is totally tied to yours and the achievements of your administration. So what he's saying is, I don't view this office as a stepping stone for my own political well-being. I view this office as one that's supposed to support you, the president. Mondale approached the question differently than other people had. What Mondale said is not, how can I make the vice presidency meaningful to me, but how can I make the vice presidency helpful to Carter? Um, Mondale's focus was on trying to help Carter be successful, not on viewing the vice presidency as a presidential successor. So by focusing on the here and now, on making Carter's administration successful, rather than on what happened if Carter died, he changed the psychology of the relationship. And Mondale thought that the vice presidency could be helpful by not by taking on specific ongoing responsibilities, parts of the government. That had been the approach that Rockefeller and Humphrey, previous people, had, had thought. They thought, if I have a piece of the government to run, that will make me powerful. Mondale th thought the way he could contribute was being an all-purpose, across-the-board advisor and somebody who could take on assignments that were important to Carter, but that Carter didn't have time to do. Walter Mondale really was the first modern vice president. He had a relationship with President Carter that allowed him to have significant influence as vice president. Uh, that was premised on uh, an agreement the president and vice president reached that had some core principles to it. And one of those principles was that uh, the president told the White House staff that when the vice president spoke, he spoke with the authority of the president. The president made sure the vice president got every piece of paper 
that uh, the president got. So everything went to the president, also went to the vice president. The vice president had regular access to the president, a weekly lunch or some kind of weekly get-together, uh, and had some independence in selecting a staff and building a team to staff him out, and the right to send staff to key meetings. So those basic ideas about access, access to information, access to meetings, access to the president, really created the groundwork on which this modern vice presidency has been built. That's Ron Klain, who served as chief of staff to two vice presidents, Al Gore and Joe Biden. There have been six vice presidents since Mondale. Bush, Quayle, Gore, Cheney, Biden, and now Pence. And Klain says they all fall into one of two broad buckets. One is the vice presidents who really want to be the president's most senior advisor, one of the most senior advisors, kind of a uh, a, uh, an advisor without necessarily a fixed portfolio, the last person in the room, the person who whispers in the president's ear. Uh, Vice President Bush was like that. Uh, Vice President Mondo was like that. Vice President Biden was like that. Then there are vice presidents who want to have their own portfolios, want to manage things, want to really be in charge of stuff. Vice President Gore was very much like that. Vice President Quayle was like that. Uh, Vice President Cheney was like that. We also talked to Bill Crystal, the editor of the Weekly Standard. Before he was a regular pundit on TV, Crystal served as Dan Quayle's chief of staff. Crystal said Quayle's role was defined by his boss, George H.W. Bush, who had spent eight years as Ronald Reagan's number two. Of course, George H.W. Bush had been vice president for eight years. So in a way, I think much more than typically is the case, let's say when Clinton and Gore took over, a governor and a senator, or, you know, Cheney, unusual character to become vice president. In our case, I think Bush very much had an image of the vice presidency. He had been, he had been very much a second fiddle to Reagan. I you know, don't say that at all, at all uh, in any kind of pejorative way, and I don't think he felt it inappropriate, but Reagan was such a huge figure, and, and, Bush, was very, and Bush had come from the other wing of the party, so he was very much the vice president. Um, and I think that was his view, frankly, of the vice presidency in general, that it was a you know, useful position, could do some good. Quill was younger, he'd shown political talent by beating a Democrat to win his Senate seat, and he was more conservative than Bush. Bill Clinton's decision to pick Al Gore followed from a different strategy than Bush's decision to pick Quayle, Klein said. If Vice President Mondale changed the vice presidency, then I think the selection of Al Gore changed the way in which vice presidents are selected. Um, Vice President Mondale had a very different vice presidency than his predecessor, but the theory of picking him was in some ways a very traditional theory. Jimmy Carter was a conservative Southerner. He picked one of the most prominent Northern liberals in the party to balance the ticket, geographic balance, ideological balance. And that was kind of the way this was done, right? Uh, But Bill Clinton had a different idea. He was a Southern moderate from the right middle south part of the country, and he picked someone who had roughly the same ideology from the state right next door. It broke every, and by the way, the same, basically the same age. It broke every single rule about picking a vice president, and it was genius because I think uh, when he picked uh, Vice President Gore in 1992, uh, the race was very close. In some ways, Clinton was trailing. Uh, but I think that the combination of these two men of the same age, from the same part of the country, really electrified people's sense of generational change. The two vice presidents Klain served, Gore and Biden, fashioned themselves totally differently. Gore wanted to own certain issues. He spearheaded an initiative to reinvent government, and he became the administration's go-to guy on technology and the environment. Biden was more of an advisor without portfolio. He oversaw some of the Obama administration's biggest initiatives, like the stimulus and the delicate negotiations with Republicans over tax cuts, but he spent most of his time offering advice. 
When Gore went office, he asked an old mentor of his, the historian Richard Neustadt, to write him a memo on how he could best use the vice presidency. Neustadt summed up the tension that every vice president feels. Presidents live in the present, he wrote. Vice presidents live in the future. And that gets to a fundamental tension between the presidency and the vice presidency. The president is always vaguely aware that his number two probably wants a shot at the Oval Office someday. And so the vice president is probably looking out for his own political interests. We've had two vice presidents in a row, Cheney and Biden, who didn't run for president. But that's pretty rare. Since Richard Nixon became vice president in 1953, only two other vice presidents did not seek the presidency after they served. Spiro Agnew left office in disgrace, and Nelson Rockefeller died before he got the chance. And even Rockefeller had run for president before three times. Both Klain and Crystal said that there is political tension between a president and a vice president. The tension, the, the struggle between the two offices is something that has to be managed. It can go right, it can go poorly. Um, and, uh, but I always felt, in my view, that the fundamental point was this. Uh, everyone in the White House works for the president. Everyone including the vice president. Uh, vice president has you know, got his own authority and his own selected by the American people and people cast electoral votes for the vice president. But ultimately, uh, inside the White House, the vice president works for the president's team works for the president. And you can never, uh, as a member of the vice president's staff, pursue policies or objectives that aren't also in the president's interest. Ultimately, he's the vice president, you know. And that was always made clear to us, and as it should have been, I mean, as we understood. It's all about Bush. It's about the, the overall team. It's about the agenda. Uh, nothing much hinged on Quayle's personal standing. Crystal told us about rumors he'd heard during the 1992 campaign that Bush might consider replacing Quayle on the ticket. I made clear to Bob Teeter, who was running the president's campaign, that, look, if the president wanted to make a change, I didn't think it was my place. And I suspected the vice president didn't, wouldn't be happy, but he didn't think it would be his place to stand in the way. So they, they, some of the leaks started, however. The president never told the vice president he didn't want him. Uh, and I did fight back on those leaks. And that was, I've got to say, it wasn't, I didn't really like it because it was, you know, I was worried. The, the, it was defending the vice president. It was tense. There was a lot of, little more tension in the White House than there had been at other times. But it was kind of fun in a way and exciting. And we did a pretty good job, I've got to say, of pushing back and using the media and, and getting friends to weigh in. And, and given that the president never made clear he didn't want Dan Quayle, and I think he always did want him, honestly, we beat back efforts by some of the president's advisors to kind of maneuver him off the ticket. But Klain and Crystal both said their old bosses were acutely aware of the vice in their titles. You're always a bit of an invited guest. Uh, vice presidential power has been re uh, assessed uh, since Vice President Mondo. All the vice presidents have been in influential. But that influence fundamentally is an act of grace from the president. The president could make that influence go away any day. Um, and so, uh, you know, part of navigating life in the vice presidency is navigating that relationship with the president and then the relationship at the staff levels. In the end, I think there is an alignment of interests around the idea that if the vice president wants to be a candidate while he's vice president, he has to do whatever he can to make sure the president's as successful as possible. And that brings us to Mike Pence and the way he's defining the office of the vice president. Pence told a bunch of interviewers back in January that he planned to follow a familiar model, George H.W. Bush's. Here he is talking to ABC's Martha Raddatz. You know, the more I've thought about it, Martha, when I think about the, the president that I'll be serving, I've I've been spending a fair amount of time thinking about the life and the example of Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush. 
because I think then as now, there was a president taking office who came to Washington, D.C. to change Washington, who had a bold and fresh leadership and who had marshaled the support of millions of Americans. There are a lot of similarities between the two administrations. Reagan was an outsider. He'd never held office in Washington. Bush was an insider. He'd been a member of Congress, the head of the CIA, and the chairman of the Republican National Committee. Trump had never held office at all. Pence spent 12 years in Congress. He held a leadership position in the House, and he knows all the senators and congressmen the administration will need to push their agenda. Both Pence and Bush acted like liaisons to Capitol Hill. And there's another thing Pence wants to do that Bush did. After eight years, Bush ran for president. He was the only person since Martin Van Buren to win the presidency as the sitting vice president. Pence probably wouldn't mind duplicating that feat. Hey, thanks for listening today. Our thanks to Joel Goldstein, Ron Klain, and Bill Crystal for giving us their time. We want your feedback on the show. We're getting ready for a new batch of episodes, so email us at podcastatthehill.com and let us know what else you want to hear about. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Hill History Cast. Our producers are Lisa Rule and Moral Whiteman. Neve, thanks for joining me today. I'm Reed Wilson, and this is the Hill's History Cast. <laughs>